This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories of snow children. You'll see that if you're building a snowman, maybe think a little bit about the responsibility of raising that snowman, getting the snow child snow braces, and sending it off to snow college and all that. It's all fun and games until snow comes to life. The creature this week is Cinnamon Bird, who's happy to drop off some cinnamon sticks for your spice rack, just as long as you don't mind that his baby cinnamon bird chicks use them as a bed and toilet. This is Myths and Legends, episode 96, Cold as Ice. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Credit Karma. So, when was the last time you checked your credit score? I know, I know. But look, your scores may change more than you think. And it'd be nice to know what they are now, not from a year ago. Credit Karma's here to help. And the best thing? Credit Karma is always free. There's no catch. No credit card needed. Go to creditkarma.com or download the Credit Karma app now. It's winter here in the Northern Hemisphere. And while walking the dog in negative two degree temperatures, I was hit with the idea that a winter-themed episode might be cool. Ha. Huh. I have long been trying to find a place for the Slavic story of the snow maiden. It's a story filled with love, loss, and the medieval Russian equivalent of reality TV, where two women demand that the king sort out their relationship problems. The second story today is centered around relationship problems, but we'll get to that one. The old woodcutter dragged the logs on a sled back home. The snow was already coming down. It had started early this year, and it would be a long winter. By the time the woodcutter made it safely home, it was nearly nightfall. His cottage glowed in the middle of the forest. Through the window, he could see his wife tidying up their little home. As always, he began to smile, but then stopped. They were happy together, but they were alone. He had built the house when they were young. He had built many rooms, and they had only ended up using one. The couple was now in their early 60s, and they were woodcutters, and they had not only survived, but thrived in a very unforgiving world. They knew they had a lot to be grateful for. On some level, the old man felt greedy for wanting more. He tried to put it out of his head. That ship had sailed a long, long time ago. Still, he was at the age to be a grandpa. He had hoped to be surrounded by laughing children by now. True, he was happy and thankful for his life, with his wife in their cabin in the woods. But someday, one of them would be alone, and then the other would quickly follow. Their little cabin would stand quiet and cold until someone found him or his wife, and then the world would quickly forget that they'd ever existed. They would leave nothing and no one behind. The woodcutter dropped the bundles of wood off at the shed and looked at his wife again through the window. An idea came to him, and he smiled. An hour later, he entered the house, shivering, and he staggered to the fire, his wife asked him if everything was all right, and he simply nodded before beckoning her to look outside. She sailed to the window, looked out, and smiled. She glanced back to her husband with a smirk and wrapped herself in her coat. A second later, she stood outside, looking at the child. The old man wasn't a particularly great sculptor by any standard, but somehow, he had made something amazing. It was a girl in her mid-teens, 
she looked just like the wife when the elderly couple had first met. The wife smiled and, looking at a near-perfect likeness in the snow, felt, just for a moment, like they had a daughter. And then, the girl made out of snow blinked. The husband screamed, and the wife rushed to the old man's axe. The statue took a deep breath and grinned. Her eyes darted between the husband and the wife, and softly, she said, Good evening, kind folks. Do you want to be my parents? I'd be a good daughter and honor you as father and mother. Extra chunks of snow began falling away from the girl, and the husband and wife just stood there, speechless. They looked at each other, perplexed. What did this all mean? A child just formed in front of them in the forest after decades of dreaming about one. Was this a good idea? I mean, in any of the stories, a creature appearing in front of you and offering to make your dreams come true was usually not a great idea. Still, they looked on her and knew that she was the daughter that they'd never had. She had come to them, though not in the way they expected. The wife standing there with an axe raised above her head was a pretty solid indication of that. But still, the girl had come at last. The husband nodded, and the wife lowered her axe. Yes, they said together. She would be the joy of their old age. She could come home. For a long time, it had just been them, the husband and wife. They thought it might be difficult to bring another person into their house, especially one that had materialized from the snow and maybe the couple's hopes and dreams. But it wasn't difficult at all. The girl was kind, sweet, and always respectful, never contradicting, which, okay, before I became a parent, I would have thought the not contradicting part would have been this weirdly specific detail. But after becoming a parent, I am completely on board and I'm like, Oh my gosh, what an amazing child. I should point out too, that after the transformation in the forest, this girl is a human girl. She's not like a snow person just dripping around their cabin or anything. She was, however, both hauntingly pale and beautiful, with stark white skin and shining white hair. She looked otherworldly. The elderly couple loved her and considered her their daughter, yet something was off about the girl. She was kind and loving in her words and actions, but when she looked into their eyes, there was a disconnect between what she was saying and how she looked. There was something cold about her. She was also a woman of few words, and as the days passed, the new parents began to grow a bit concerned. They would ask her why she was so shy, why she always stayed home with them and didn't have any friends. Maybe she started to say that she was shy because she had been formed as a nearly full-grown adult, and was still figuring everything out, and that she didn't have friends because she had only been in existence for a couple of weeks. But she didn't. Remember, she didn't talk back. She simply replied that she was happy with them, and she didn't want to go out. And yeah, after all that wanting and waiting for a child for years, the parents finally got the perfect kid full grown, and already they're like, hey, why don't you go out with some friends and get out of our hair for a bit? Oh... You like spending time with us because that might have been the reason you were brought to life from ice and snow? Oh, honey, that's so sweet. But seriously, how long is winter break? Please go make some friends. The next day, they could all hear faint noises from the village. The town festival had started, and the streets were full of singing and laughing from early in the morning until late at night. At the prompting of her new parents, 
Snuguracha, as she was called, set out through the forest, and it wasn't long before she came to the village. It was a lot to take in. Imagine if you or I were suddenly dropped in a medieval Slavic village festival and were told to just fit in and make friends. I have no idea what I would do, and neither did Snogorica. The already quiet girl just sat to the side and watched the people laughing and singing and dancing in the street. Kopava, a girl in the village who was about Snogorica's age, well, the age that Snogorica was created to be, of course, because technically she's only two weeks old. Anyway, Kopava noticed this strange, beautiful woman sitting by herself off to the side at the festival. Kupafa parted from her friends, found two cups of wine, and went to introduce herself to this mystery girl. Snagoracha couldn't help but smile when she saw Kupava approach. The girl radiated friendliness, and Snagoracha could smell the girl's perfumes as the silks on her dress fluttered past, and Kupava took a seat right next to her on the wall. She handed Snagoracha a cup of wine and smiled. She waited until Snagoracha felt like talking, and the girls chatted for the rest of the night. Snogorachub returned to her home, smiling. She had made her first friend. Snogorachub went to the festival the next day and met Kupava's friends. She caught the eye of one in particular, a shepherd boy named Lel. He played the flute for the group as they danced. And afterward, Snogorachub mustered all of her courage to say hello. After that, the pair was inseparable. Turning the subtext into the text, the story says that all the men in the village were enamored with the girl's beautiful whiteness. But she only wanted to spend time with Lel, the sweet shepherd boy. Lel would get everyone together for a long walk and then run toward the forest to the woodcutter's house to get Snagoracha. Once she appeared from the house, the two didn't leave each other's sides until he brought her back to the cabin each night. One day, when she was walking through the village to meet Kupala, Snagoracha saw a beautiful carriage thunder into town catching the eye of all the villagers. Periodically, a rich merchant, a guy by the name of Mitzger, would come to the town and trade. Snogorocha watched him step down from his carriage, and all the eyes in town went to Mitzger. With his fashionable clothes and perfectly feathered hair, his steely blue eyes, though, saw Snogorocha, and then she was all that he saw. He pushed aside the local merchant that was trying to greet him and flew to the beautiful girl in the simple clothes of a woodcutter's daughter. He bowed low, kissed her hand, and introduced himself. He told her that she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Snogorocha walked with Mitzger a bit and listened to the man go on about her. He begged her to let him take her out. It was then that Snogorocha smiled and waved to Kupava, remember one of her few friends. But Kupava wasn't smiling at her. Snogorocha's best friend flew past her and embraced Metzger. She was so happy that her fiancé, had finally returned. Snogorocha watched the pair as they embraced after being apart for so long. Even though she had been formed from the snow less than a month ago and knew next to nothing of the world outside this village, as Mitzger looked on her with a combination of lust and longing while he embraced his fiancée, Snogorocha knew her life had just become really, really complicated. Kupava was white, yeah, but Snogorcha was like pale as a corpse with all white hair. It was wild. These were the thoughts that he was having as he hung out with his fiance and her friends, and he couldn't take his eyes off Snogorcha. He had started coming to this town months ago on a business trip, and the beautiful 
happy and sweet Kapava had, of course, caught his attention. It wasn't long until they became lovers, the story says, and then he visited the town much more often. All that changed the winter when Sengorucha joined their little group. But that was not what she wanted at all. Kupava was her friend. It was because of her that she met Lel. Yet, Pava noticed the glances. Well, they were less glances and more awkward, longing stares. Everyone noticed them. Sengorucha wanted nothing to do with Mitsker, but Mitsker wanted something to do with her. So much so that he called off his wedding to Kapava. Kupava knew exactly why this had happened and immediately stopped talking to Snogorucha. All the young woman's friends deserted her too, except for Lel, who would still come by the cottage, and Mitsker. The elderly couple was honored by such an esteemed man's visits. They were even more honored when Mitsker asked for their daughter's hand in marriage. However, Snogorucha didn't have a chance to respond one way or another. Men from the Tsar the Russian equivalent of a king, were pounding at the door. Snogorucha, the snow maiden, was under arrest. Okay, so I'm going to plead extreme ignorance when it comes to early modern Russian legal proceedings regarding fiancés and the stealing thereof. But apparently Kupava, the wronged party in Mitsker's stupidity, brought charges against Snogorucha to the Tsar, saying that she wouldn't suffer the dishonor of Snogorucha swooping into her life to steal the heart of Kupava's beloved. Snogorucha and her parents shook with fear as they rode to the capital. Snogorucha wept. She loved her friend, and no matter how clear she was, she was not in the Mitzger. The arrogant merchant had come into town and destroyed her world. I don't know how you begin to prove a charge like this, or if it's even possible, but the Tsar, maybe being a just and fair man who sought after the truth, maybe having a slow news week and in the mood for some juicy gossip from the provinces, took the case. He commanded Sengorucha and Kupava to appear in front of him. The Tsar demanded the pair to recount the entire story, and while they did, he saw something in Sengorucha, a deep and cold sadness within. She didn't love Mitsker. She didn't love anyone. She couldn't. On this basis, he dismissed the case and told Snogorucha to go home and live her life. It would be spring soon. Those were words most people in the grip of a northern Russian winter would welcome. But the Tsar said them with sadness. With all of his wisdom, learning, and insight, he saw her for what she was. We'll see how everyone back home takes the news of the Snow Maiden's acquittal, but that will be right after this. Kupava was happy. I mean, she was very distraught when she got the news that Snogorucha had been acquitted of stealing her fiancé. She had torn her pearls and almost threw herself down a well, but then she heard great news. Snogorucha was sick. The snow maiden had spent the past week shut up in her house. Her friends were Kupava's friends, and thus they were not her friends anymore. And she had turned down Mitsker's proposal by announcing it to the Tsar in his court, which was the early modern Russian equivalent of a botched Jumbotron proposal, and Lel, well, Lel still came around. But Snogorucha didn't see him. 
She wanted to. She thought about him constantly. But she saw the destruction that one man had brought into her life. And as the sun began to feel warmer and the streams began to swell, Snogorachah grew weaker and weaker. She didn't know what the future held, but she wanted to spend what time she had left with the people who had loved her enough to bring her into existence. Day after day, the woodcutter and his wife turned Lel away until the shepherds stopped coming by. Soon, spring arrived in their town, and the trio in the woods again heard singing in the streets. Once again, it was festival season. They pushed Nagorcha out of the house this time. They remembered the winter festival, and how much that had changed their daughter's life, and sure, it led to her being brought in front of the Tsar on trumped-up charges of trying to steal another woman's fiancé, but, you know, it got her out of the house, so they made her go to the festival again. There, people gave Snagorcha a wide berth, and it wasn't until the dance that she finally saw Lel. She stared at the shepherd. The Tsar had been right about her. He didn't know the true reason why, but he could see it in her eyes. Something was missing. She wanted to love. She just couldn't. She had been formed from the snow and the ice. She was beautiful, fragile, and cold. She looked on Lel, the shepherd, and even her parents, and she wanted to love them, but could not. Any attempts to get close to people had only brought them pain. Still, when she saw Lel at the festival, something moved within her. When it was time for the young men to choose the young woman with whom to dance, she hoped that he would choose her. He looked in her direction and smiled. She sighed. She had missed him so much. He held out his hand, and Snogorcha was shoved aside. Snogorcha watched as Kupava took Lel's hand. Lel hadn't even seen Snogorcha standing there. The pair danced and looked deeply into each other's eyes. They were in love. Snogorcha would later learn that Lel had been walking by the forest with his herds when he heard weeping. He rushed in and found Kupava standing on the edge of the well, the pearls and silk clothes Mitzger had given her rushing to the bottom. Lel caught her just as she stepped off the lip of the well, trying to take her own life. She saw his face, hugged him, and sobbed. With Lel's help, Kupava had come to forgive Snogorcha. Deep down, she knew it wasn't Snogorcha's fault. It had been Mitzger all along. After the well incident, Lel and Kupava were inseparable, and the pair fell in love. Snogorcha watched the pair dance, and her heart broke. She couldn't feel love, but she could feel pain. She turned and left the dance. Snogorcha knew who she was. She knew what she was. She had always known who her true mother was. And now, she was going to speak to her. She called out to the spring. And yes, her mother is the personification of spring. Though when it comes to children who were instantly brought to life and transformed into sentient snow humans, parentage gets a bit fuzzy. But spring is Snogorcha's mother. The snow maiden called out to her. And spring appeared in front of her daughter. Right there in the forest. Snogorcha's face was streaked with tears. And she screamed at her mother. She couldn't love but she could feel all the pain of love? Why? Her mother tried to calm her daughter. She knew Snogorcha was mad and she understood that. Snogorcha got a worse deal than most. She had the desire to love and the warmth from her mother, the spring, 
and the coldness and the inability to love she got from her father, Father Frost. He, of course, was completely Frost and not conflicted about being unable to love, which, yeah, is great to be married to, the spring added. Snugorcha brought the conversation back to her. If she was like her mom, couldn't she just be able to love? The spring replied that, yes and no, mostly no. She was technically capable of love, yes, but since she was her father's daughter, she would only be able to love for one minute before it killed her. Otherwise, she would be weak in spring and summer, yes, but she would be the immortal daughter of the winter and spring. Really not a bad consolation prize. Maybe take up a hobby, do some traveling, start a nonprofit. She could have a really full life, even without love. Snugorcha took a deep breath and wiped her eyes. She knew what she had to do the moment she learned of it. Her only wish was to be able to feel love. She didn't care if it killed her, because not being able to love would do the same thing. The spring threw up her hands. No, no, it would not. Did she not listen to any of the upside about not being able to love? She was immortal. It literally meant unable to die. But the spring looked on her daughter, the snow maiden, sobbing on the ground. She nodded. If she wouldn't help her three-month-old, emotionally compromised teenager make deadly and irrevocable life choices, what sort of mother would she be? And so she nodded. She breathed deeply and then exhaled on the girl. Be careful with your love, she cautioned. Give it only to someone worthy. After all, that will be the person that she would die with. Snogorocha nodded and watched her mother turn into flowers and drift away on the wind. When she was gone, Snogorocha thought she heard something not far off in the forest. She followed it and sighed when she saw the source. It was Mitzger. The merchant looked at Snogorocha and sobbed even harder. He had been a mess since she turned him down in front of everyone. At the court of the Tsar, he didn't care about the embarrassment. He cared about her. She had broken his heart. Snogorocha knew what that was like now, and for the first time in her life, she felt something. She flew to Mitzger, and the story mentions her flinging herself into his hot arms, which I'm assuming is because love was dangerous to her and not because his arms were particularly attractive. He stood, unable to believe what was going on. She took his hand, telling him that they didn't have much time. Her parents' cabin was close. She was beaming, and Mitzker couldn't believe it. Soon, they stood before Snogorich's cabin, and she threw open the door. She said that she was in love, and she wanted to marry Mitzker. Mitzker stepped forward to ask their permission, and the couple didn't even wait for him to finish. They said that they had never seen their daughter so happy or so alive. Of course they said yes. The three looked in excitement to Snogorcha to celebrate with the young woman, but she wasn't there. Amid the warm spring wind coming in through the open door, they saw a quickly melting puddle of slush right there in the center of the room. When the stick that the woodcutter had used to steady his creation clanged to the ground, she was gone. No one had seen it, but she melted with a smile on her face. She had loved, and she had been loved. So, 
I have some issues with this story. I really wanted her to end up with Lull. It seems like she kind of threw away her life by running to the convenient Mitzger, and it really felt like, given the amount of character building the story did, that they just needed to wrap things up. Mitzger was conveniently available. I mean, he was responsible for so many of her problems, and she was shown not just not loving him, but actively disliking him. And yet, she gave him her heart and ultimately, her life. This is one of the few stories that really tempted me to rewrite the ending, but I resisted. And I'm actually really glad I did. Carissa edits the scripts and audio, and she had a really good point on the whole love square thing. Everyone actually gets a really fitting ending. Lel and Kupafa find a deep love, having both experienced rejection and loss, before finding a happy and committed partner. The snow maiden sacrifices much, but experiences what it feels like to love and be loved before she melts. And Mitzger, well, Mitzger gets a taste of his own medicine. The snow maiden finally loves him back, and they get engaged. He's found love, only to have it taken away and the engagement broken, just like he did to Kupava. There are a few different versions of the story. This one is from a pretty famous play and opera based on the fairy tale. But in other versions, the main character doesn't find love at the end, but rather friendship. She makes friends with a group of girls, and they're having some fun jumping over a fire. She takes her turn, but never completes her jump. From what I could tell, she's a helper and the granddaughter of Deb Moros, Old Man Frost, a Slavic figure similar to Father Christmas. He brings children presents on New Year's Eve. Snogorachow accompanies him and wears silver and blue robes. The version in this story fits with Slavic folklore, where Grandfather Frost is a snow demon or wizard of winter. The current depictions of Old Man Frost and the Snow Maiden make appearances during the winter holidays, and they give out gifts and fight off Baba Yaga, who apparently wants to steal children's gifts, and also probably the kids. In my research for the Snow Children's stories, I also found a much shorter one that I just had to include. So here it is. It's the story of the Snow Child, a widespread tale in European folklore. There was once a rich merchant whose work took him away from home a lot. One day, after being out at sea for over a year, he came home to find his wife nursing a newborn baby boy. His eyes wide, he wanted to know, what was all this? The wife said that it was a miracle. That's what it was. The baby was a snow child. The husband narrowed his eyes. Is that so? The wife said she knew exactly when it happened too. It was last winter. She was out walking in the snow, and a single snowflake fell from the sky and landed on her stomach. As it melted, she thought of her husband and how much she missed him. Weeks later, she discovered that she was pregnant. There was no other explanation than the snowflake that landed on her as she thought of how much she loved and missed her husband. Hmm. No other explanation at all, the husband asked. Nope, the wife replied. Also, did she mention that she was walking home from church when the snowflake landed on her? Because she had absolutely been walking home from church. Hmm, was all the husband could say. He was still away from home a lot, but when he was home, he was more and more suspicious of the snow child. One day, 15 years later, he said it was time for his son to learn the family business. After all, it would all be his someday. The boy was excited, and the mother was happy, 
that the skeptical father seemed to finally have come around to the kid. They sailed far, far away to the port of Alexandria, where the merchant told the boy that he was going to learn from the best in the business. When they arrived at port, it didn't look like the house of the best in the business, but the boy had only seen his little village, so he figured he would trust his father. The merchant went in and talked to a man, and then he left quickly, a sack of money flung over his shoulder. The boy was confused. Was the merchant being paid so that the best in the business could train the boy? Yeah, kinda, the merchant said. Well, more accurately, no, he added, pausing briefly. He didn't know what the boy would end up doing. That was really up to his master. Master? The boy asked in a panic, as the iron cuffs were slapped on his wrist. The merchant called out that it wouldn't be so bad. It was just medieval slavery in a foreign land where the child understood neither the language nor the customs. Anyway, goodbye forever. The merchant left whistling, swinging his bag of money while the boy was dragged away. It was another year before he returned home, and the mother was so excited to learn how everything had gone, so she was very confused when only the merchant returned home. Where was her son? The merchant admitted that, for the longest time, he didn't believe his wife, that the boy was a snow child. He thought that she had cheated on him, had a child with another man, and thought that he was stupid enough to believe that the child had been conceived by, what, the snow? The woman swallowed hard. Oh, is that so? The man nodded, but now he had to apologize for not trusting her. He knew now that she had been telling the truth the whole time. The woman said that she was. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, she was. The husband said that it happened when they were in Egypt. The husband and the boy were hiking across the desert. It got bad. The husband nearly died of the heat, he said. But then he didn't finish. He just kept unpacking his bag. And? What happened to my son? The mother asked. Well, you know what happened to him, my love. I am so sorry, but... You were right. You were right the whole time. He was a snow child. Because there, in the sands of Egypt, he melted. The husband went back to unpacking his things. The wife started to speak, but then thought better of it. Finally, she had to ask, Was that really what happened to him? The man turned to her. Was the boy really a snow child? The woman swallowed hard and nodded. There was no way she could tell him now. Then yes, he said. That's what happened to him. Two snow children, two very different endings. One's a beautiful and complex story about love and the meaning of life. The other's about infidelity and child slavery. It's a pretty wide range for one episode. Next week, it's the story of Jack and the Beanstalk and Jack the Giant Killer. And you'll see that when it comes to robbing people that literally eat punks like you for breakfast, if at first you don't succeed, put everyone you love in mortal danger and try, try again. I want to say thanks to Mr. Pedrito, to Jane K, Mastira, Scragsler, Kojo Kenobi, Flycatcher DIY from the Western Edge, Adam from Canada, Merowski 3, Momox Fan, Ghost Rida, and Guy Velik for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. It's great to hear from you. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of Kumis, 
alcoholic horse's milk. You can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that don't have, quote, palate-confusing bubbles, and do not give you the sensation that you're drinking champagne mixed with cottage cheese. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Cinnamon Bird from the Arabian Peninsula. Cinnamon Bird, or Cinnamologus, doesn't make an appearance in Arabian folklore, but he's the ancient Greek explanation for where cinnamon sticks come from. It's allegedly in the Arabian Peninsula because that was the only cinnamon producer known to the Greeks at the time. A lot of people in the ancient world were intentionally vague as to where cinnamon came from. Others went all in on very reasonable explanations. Writers like Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, looked at the cinnamon stick and worked backwards. Well, it's obviously a stick, so where do you get sticks? Trees. But you know who else gets sticks from trees? Birds. Given that cinnamon isn't absolutely everywhere, it must be hard to find. These giant birds have to fly to faraway lands, get cinnamon sticks for their nests, and then build them. But the birds can't be too easy to hunt, or else they'd be hunted to extinction, because who's not going to go after delicious cinnamon nests? So they must not only be huge, but build rickety nests on cliff faces where people can't get to them. So, to get to them, people would have to tempt them with the meat of sick donkeys and oxen. But like, the Costco version. That's probably too much, but you got a deal on it, so sure, you can strap toilet paper to the roof of your car. The birds must get back with their massive portions of meat, and those would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Or the hunk of raw donkey that breaks the cinnamon bird's nest. As the equally well-known saying goes, people would then be at the bottom to collect the cinnamon sticks and run away as fast as they can. I can imagine another writer looking at this hundreds of years later and saying, wow, that's really stupid. I mean, a cinnamon bird? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But the people of the Arabian Peninsula didn't need to cut up donkeys to get cinnamon. They could just shoot lead arrows at the poorly constructed nests. Come on, guys. The simplest explanation is the best one. Really, the harvesting of cinnamon is a multi-year process where the stick is a dried roll of the soft inner bark. But... The cinnamon bird is a tantalizing explanation, especially if you don't mind your cinnamon scavenged by birds, likely smeared in droppings from cinnamon bird chicks and weighed down by the meat of sick donkeys and oxen before it's collected. Again, from the ground beneath said bird nest. Delicious. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.